fashionable in the postmodern world, even in much of Christian circles, to dismiss the idea of a devil as nothing more than a child's myth. And I do believe certain understandings of the devil should be rejected. We have a tendency to over-anthropomorphize God, and we tend to do that with the devil as well. An old man with a white beard sitting on a cosmic throne somewhere should probably be rejected as an image of God. Just as a person in a red suit with horns and a black pointed goatee and a pitchfork should probably also be rejected as an image of the devil. However, just as we move through stages of faith and we can and we should start to reject ideas of God that we realize are no longer true, even ideas that at one point in our journey were very important and necessary, still as we go past those, we don't reject the idea of God in total. What we are doing is hoping to find a bigger understanding, a more complete picture. We're hoping to fade deeper into the mystery that is God than these little images that helped us slowly grow gave us. And so I suggest we should be just as careful as we begin to think ourselves advanced or open-minded or intelligent when we go about rejecting the idea of a devil. I suggest we should examine what kind of devil we are rejecting but not completely reject the idea. It is impossible to live in this world with honesty and open eyes and not admit that evil exists. Impossible. In fact, I'll confess, I find it much easier to believe in a devil because of the unbelievable evil in this world than I find it to believe in a God of love because of the distinct lack of love in this world. So here's a couple thoughts that I want to share for those of us because we're all in different parts of this path. And I think this might be one of the most important stories in Scripture. So I want everyone to be there with me when we get there. Number one, if all you can call the devil right now in your current journey is evil, then that's fine. But I want to encourage you to at least recognize that this evil is capable of making humans do horrific things. And I believe in that cause and effect. Here's why. I believe in it because I believe we're all made in the image of God. I believe that image is cracked in all of us. And I believe that even a cracked image of God is not capable of perpetrating some of the evil that is perpetrated in this world. It comes from somewhere, from some influences. Everyone remember the Rwandan genocide? It happened 25 years ago. I've been studying it. I studied it years ago in college. I studied it this week as I prepared for this sermon. In 100 days, 800,000 people were slaughtered in horrific ways. As a result of the Rwandan genocide that lasted 100 days over the next few years because of what it did to that part of Africa, over 5 million people lost their lives. 25 years later, there is a whole new generation of victims because they estimate that between 20 and 50,000 now 25-year-olds were born because of rape during the genocide. 
to mothers who have no husbands and no sons. If you have ever studied the genocide, you have read biographies and autobiographies of people who participated in it, and they will tell you that when it ended, they had no idea why they did what they did. No idea why they decided one day to wake up and kill friends, neighbors, co-workers, and in some instances, spouses, because they were the wrong people. They don't know why. To this day, they can't explain what happened. And I think, isn't this also what is behind Christ's most valuable lesson on forgiveness? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You can hyper-spiritualize that, which a lot of people do, and say, well, he was talking about they didn't know they were killing God. I, I reject that. I think what he was doing was giving us one of the most important keys to moving into forgiveness. Understand that when people hurt us, they may not know what they're doing. Another thought I want to share with you, which is similar. I caution us that we deny the existence of a devil at our own peril. It is amazing what we can convince ourselves of is good. And the more I listen to people explain away their grotesque violations of human morals and human decency, the more impressed I am with this devil. One of the lines in the song that comes later in the song after I shut it off, he says, I rode a tank, held a general's rank when the blitzkrieg raged and the body stank. If Rwanda wasn't bad enough, just go back to the 1940s when an unbelievable amount of men from Germany, good men, upright citizens, many Christians who worshiped at church on Sunday mornings, spent four years slaughtering six million Jews and 10 million Russian peasants in horrific ways. When you know something is wrong, but convince yourself it is right, that's evil. That's the devil. That's whatever you need to call it right now in your journey, but please recognize it exists. And don't dismiss its reality because that's when it does its best work. Like right now. How many people support Christian ideas that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ and have convinced themselves it's biblical and it's okay. That's evil. Now, I'm going to say this. I don't believe the devil is the opposite of God. I don't. I believe there's only one uncreated being. I believe there's only one being that is everywhere all the time. So I don't think this is the opposite of God. But I do believe in the existence of a devil, or devils, or demons, whatever you want to call them. Call me old-fashioned, call me fundamental, call me an idiot, call me small-minded, call me whatever you want, I'm fine with that. Because of all the things I just said, I believe in it, but there's another reason I believe in it. See, I believe in Jesus Christ. And it's this temptation story that we're about to go through that convinces me of it. Here's why. As a Christian, I think we're supposed to believe Jesus Christ is God. 
Well, here's the thing. The only person who knew this happened was Jesus Christ. He was the only one that was there. So in order for this to have made his record of his life, he would have had to tell his disciples this happened. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, I don't think he made the story up. I think he told his disciples what happened exactly the way it happened. And if you say, well, but no, someone could have made the story up after the fact. Okay, well, here's the deal. I don't believe there's a human being that could have written the story unless it happened just the way it was recorded for us. Now, a man who is far, far more brilliant than me, Fyodor Dostoevsky, he gives what I believe to mo be the most valuable, most important, and most insightful commentary on the temptation of Christ. You can all read it. It's called a poem. It's called The Grand Inquisitor. It's found within his greatest novel, The Brothers Karamazov. Within this poem, which is actually a commentary on the temptation of Christ, he writes this. If all the wise men in the world were brought together and given this task to think up, to invent three questions which would not only correspond to the scale of the event, but moreover would express in three words and three human phrases only the entire future history of the world and mankind, do you think that all the combined wisdom of the earth could think up anything faintly resembling in force and depth those three questions? This is a magnificent story, and I believe it happened just the way we are told it happened. So let's look at these three questions and see what we can learn and what can be helpful to us in our journey toward transformation. I believe this is a conversation between Jesus and the devil about grace. This is an attempt to stop God from going to the cross to save the world. These are not three simple lessons in fighting ethical temptations. I remember always being a kid, and I would be so confused when this story was taught to us because I couldn't figure it out. Like, how is eating a sin? He was hungry. I, I, I couldn't figure it out. How, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're silly enough to climb up to a top of a building and jump off because you think angels are going to catch you, go for it. I just don't see that as a sin. So it always confused me. And then as I started getting older and I started reading more and doing more research and I was willing to let go of tightly held things that I believed, and then I started to realize, wait a second, this is one of the grandest stories in all of Scripture. One of the most important moments in the life of the man, Jesus. And in the cosmic battle between good and evil. Let's go back to before the beginning. Scripture says this. Christ was the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. So, I want you to think about this. If this is true, if that's a true statement. What's up, man? Absolutely. You're always welcome. We like having you here. All right. Well, thanks for being here. So, if this is true, if this is a true statement, then God is and always has been committed to grace. Nothing changed. Nothing happened to make him commit to grace. He has and always has been. And if that's true, that means God's character is and always has been that of unconditional love. And so if that's true, then it must mean God created us because he wants to be in true, loving relationship with us. Because that's what love wants, is relationship. Okay? 
but true relationship can only happen because of love. So stay with me, I'm getting there. So that means God's true power is grace, not force. If God want, loves us and wants one thing for us, to love him back of our own free will, then grace is the only power that will work. So here's the temptation of Christ. Use human force. It'll get your job done a lot easier than grace. In fact, grace won't work. There's the temptation. But any kind of force as we understand force, is not going to create a true relationship because what does force ultimately do? It shuts the door on relationship. Let me try to explain. Because it's hard to understand this because we use force in our world. That's how we humans function with force, and it works. It gets the job done, so it's easy to buy into the lie. So, for example, if you want to get the dirt and the grime and the salt off your car after the winter, you use force. You wash it off. If you want to destroy your enemies after they attack you, or even before they attack you, you come up with names and you drop a bomb and you kill them. If you want to get someone to do something for you, you use classic manipulation. Force works. Our two-year-olds know how to manipulate us. It's a human thing. But here's the problem. From disciplining our kids to disciplining criminals, it works. But the massive limitation is it stops relationship. If we believe the chief end of man is to love God and love others, which I think we're supposed to believe if we're Christians, because that's what Jesus said, love God, love others, so we're supposed to believe that, then human power becomes useless as it tends to destroy, to close the door on relationship. But relationship is what loving God and others is all about. The cross, grace, is God's notice to the world that nothing will stop relationship with him. Nothing. He is always available for relationship. Always. Theologies that reject that idea are not theologies that come from Scripture. Well, they come from pieces of Scripture. I get it. No matter what we do, the door is always open to God. That's why he died to show us it's always open. This is how St. Paul said it. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. Nothing. Okay, so now the question. If evil does not want anyone to have relationship with God, what better way to accomplish that than creating a myth of an easier way to relationship? Right? Seduce people into thinking they're in relationship even though they're not. Now, here's the thing. The good news is the temptation didn't work on the Christ. 
But boy, post-Christ, the temptation worked on the church, didn't it? Oh, it did. This is where appeasement theology comes from. We bought the temptation. That relationship isn't about love. It's about what we do for each other. In our story, we see that the attempt by evil to seduce God into false relationship didn't work. We're going to watch that now. Had that attempt succeeded, it would have damned everyone. But it didn't. But then, sadly, the church bought into it, and so. Let's watch. The devil suggests in three different ways that if God will simply use human power and not grace, he will win the allegiance of the world in a second. So the first attempt is human basic needs. Here's basically what Lucifer is saying to Jesus. The world is starving, desperate to have their needs met, their hunger satisfied, their thirst quenched. Show them you can do those things. Make bread, give it to them, and they will follow you. See, this isn't about Jesus eating. He was hungry. That wouldn't be the sin. This is about the grand plan. This is the great story. God loves us and wants us to love him back in health and sickness, in riches and poverty, etc., 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 isn't it fascinating? No, I'm not going to go there. This is too long as it is. The devil is basically saying, we will love God as long as we don't go hungry. We will love God as long as our circumstances are wonderful. So see the lie? The lie is, what's the lie? performance equals relationship. That's appeasement theology. This is the reverse of appeasement theology. If God performs, we'll believe on him and we'll trust him. And if God doesn't, we won't. And vice versa, we teach each other, and if you're good, God will love you. And if you're not, he won't. We've all bought this lie. This is how we love each other. All the time. This is why we love the lie. So what does Jesus say? No, 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 that's not what it's about at all. It's not about performance. It's about trusting God loves us, no matter what. It's about realizing that our moment in time as this kind of human being and creature is just a speck of our eternal existence that is so much grander than this, all these things that we're afraid of, all these things we want God to, to, to do for us, don't really matter in the grand scheme. What matters is grace and love and relationship. Now what's so cool about this, and I hope some of you are doing it, reading John, I told you to read John for Lent because it's an amazing, amazing book, right? Is Jesus exposed this lie later in his ministry? And it's all right there. It's beautiful. So you go to John chapter 6. And what does he do at the beginning of John chapter 6? He makes bread and fish. And oh my gosh, the people love him. 
they love him so much that they keep following him because they're gonna and they want to make him king by force. Who wouldn't want a king that feeds you for free? I'll take that king. Then they keep coming and they keep coming. And he says, All right, guys, I just gotta tell you, it's not about the bread and fish. It was never about the bread and fish. Here's what it's about. It's about love. It's about me dying for you and you dying for each other. Oh, how does that go over with the multitudes? Oh, just like this. Twelve people left at the end of the chapter. Because it doesn't work. It's a lie. It's not relationship. The multitudes weren't in relationship with Jesus at all. They were transacting with him. They were taking his food. And that's why they liked him. He stopped making bread and fish. They stopped liking him. Are your heads starting to spin? Are you starting to be honest with yourselves? We're all tempted every moment of every day by the same devil. Boy, all these multitudes that went away, you know where they ended up? In church. Because the church bought the lie and started feeding them bread and fish. So the devil continues with another angle because Jesus didn't buy this one. And this angle is slightly similar, but just slightly different enough. So the devil looks at me and goes, okay, don't feed them. That's fine. If you don't want to feed them, I get it. But at least give them reason to believe your God. God is so vague, so confusing at times, so seemingly silent in the face of all these human fears and trials. Give them reason. Then he brilliantly quotes a messianic psalm. Oh, this was brilliant. Quote scripture. Gosh, we're good at that, aren't we? Sam and I were talking about this yesterday. So easy to quote scripture for anything you want. So here's Satan quoting brilliant scripture. And he's saying, listen, there are plenty of people here waiting for the Messiah. They're out there. They're ready to follow you. If you are him, do this and they'll get it. They're going to follow you if you will protect them from all suffering. Show them God is the great protector. And they're going to follow. But see, here's the thing. And I know this is a really hard day, but it's the, it's the middle of Lent. I'm in a hard place. And we should all be in a hard place as we explore God sometimes. Here's the thing. The story of the Messiah was not being saved from death. It is being raised out of death. And this is something I believe the entire church has missed, myself included. Listen close. Jesus died on the cross. It does not diminish the truth of this psalm. God was faithful. He raised him again on the third day. Here is the problem. It is 
far more difficult to believe in a dead and ultimately resurrected God than it is to believe in a God who could just free us from this whole death thing altogether. And now we're right back to the beginning that started the whole thing, which is self-preservation. The great lie that the devil was there in the beginning. Run and hide from God because he's going to kill you. Where did Adam and Eve get the idea they needed to hide from God? That is the dumbest thing they could have ever done. But that myth we have continued and perpetrated throughout the world, especially the church, telling people you should be afraid of God and hide from him, or he's going to destroy you. Self-preservation, we are born into it. And we love this lie the most. This is why it is really hard for us to believe in resurrection is better than no death at all. Isn't this where post, not even postmodern, modern evangelical Christianity got the whole left behind idea? We're going to be raptured. We're not going to die. And I'm really sorry if I'm treading on people's personal beliefs. I get them and I understand them. But I am committed today to shaking us up. We're in the middle of Lent. We only discover God deeper when we get shooken up. Jesus wouldn't buy the lie. He didn't jump off. The church did. And has promised glory without death for 2,000 years. There's no such thing. And maybe, as Christians, what we're really being called to is understanding life is death and that we shouldn't be afraid of it and we shouldn't run from it, but we're all guilty of it. Right here at Cana, I think Cana's trying to, to go in a good direction, but we're just afraid of death as they are outside. I'm just afraid of death, as anybody else I know. Why is that? I bought the lie. I bought the lie that there's something better. My God died. My God, who I believe in, died. Why is there something better? That must be heaven. Oh, if we could just see that. Imagine how the fear would go away. Imagine. Imagine not being afraid to die. Now we're going to live. Now we're going to live. But again, as Satan's telling Christ, just, just do this and it'll be fine. And Jesus is like, no, that's a lie. That's a lie. He says it's, it's, it's not about testing God. It's about trusting God. Trusting that God loves us, even when all around it doesn't make sense. Read a story of the genocide, the Rwandan genocide, and put yourself in the place of one of those Tootsies. Go to the Holocaust Museum. And put yourself in the place of one of those Jews. You'd much prefer this God. The God that Satan is trying to get us to believe in. But maybe there's a bigger picture. Maybe he just loves us. And it's okay. So finally, the devil pulls out all the stops. And he says, listen, 
I know who you are. The whole thing when I said, if you're the son of God, I was joking. That was dramatic effect. I know you're the son of God. And I know you want the world, so this is how to do it. Let me run it with human power. None of this grace thing. Just give them a simple, straightforward plan of action. Show them clearly who to worship. Show them when to worship. Show them how to worship, and they will follow without question. I guarantee it. I guarantee it. And if they don't, I will simply use some good old-fashioned beatings, burn a few people at the stake, we'll excommunicate a few others, and they'll snap right back into line. But this grace thing, look at the world's a mess because of grace and love. Let's just stop that whole thing, and let's just tell them what to do. And with that, Jesus had enough, and he dismisses them. And he says, you don't get it. There's only one God, and it only works one way. That's reality. All this other stuff isn't true. It's just an illusion that people buy into. Isn't it amazing how the church has really bought into this lie and took the temptation hook, line, sinker? I find it amazing that I took the temptation hook, line, and sinker. And I'm trusting a close-knit community of friends and, and fellow sojourners and pilgrims to help me not buy the lie anymore. Can we push each other together? Are we willing together to go to this place where maybe some of our most cherished ideas of God are just not true? But that opens up to even more cherished ideas. Because if I can get to the place where I'm not afraid to die, because of God, oh, I know my life is going to be different. I know it is. I know yours will be. So what else? Let's bring it back. Relationship isn't easy. I know that. It's hard enough to love people we can see and touch. Even people we want to see and touch, it's hard to love. Never mind people we don't want to see in touch. How much harder then is it to love a God who seems elusive, mysterious, and not present to us? And then here's the other thing. The closer we get to suffering and death, the harder it is. I know that. Isn't that the story of Christ? See, I could have started in Gethsemane Easter, but I, this is the first Gethsemane. But do you ever notice the difference between the two temptations when you're reading them closely? As Jesus is right next to suffering and death, uh, he's sweating blood and he's crying out and he's wishing it wasn't going to happen. He's having trouble. Three years earlier, he's not close to it. It's really easy for him to reject it. Thank God he still rejects it in the garden. But do you see what I mean? So I guess what I'm saying is this. Those of us that aren't near death, those of us that lives are pretty good right now, all things considered, it's easy to hear this and grasp the glory of it, isn't it, and, and, and want to reject this lie. But when we're close to death and we're close to a lot of suffering, I understand it's a lot harder. And so what I want to do is encourage us in this, is that, listen, if we shrink from living like Christ, we don't want to offer forgiveness to people, we don't want to give to people, we, we, we want to support things that we know look nothing like Jesus Christ, I get it. Don't be too hard on yourself. 
And oh, by the way, let's not be too hard on others that are also shrinking from living like Christ. But this is what we can know from this story, and this is what we can take from this story. It's the most beautiful thing to take from it. He didn't fail, and he's in us. If we'd let him have more control, we wouldn't fail either. Do you see? There's the talk of surrender that Jesus is always talking about. Let go of yourselves. Let me take over. It's going to be better, honest. You're going to end up not afraid. And you're going to be able to love and live like me and not even be afraid of death. It's amazing. It's amazing. Christ is in us. And now that great verse by Paul makes more sense. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. So, in closing, if this is God, if this is God, then as horrific or even ridiculous as God dying may seem, it is in this dying that we have every reason to believe that he loves us and we can choose to love him back. Let's not be tempted to live in a kingdom of human power, no matter how appealing it sounds, no matter how many results it might get, no matter how good it might make us feel in the moment. Let's be brave, surrender our fears, and follow God even to the cross. For God is there. God is there. And what we are all really looking for anyway can only be found where God is. Amen. Now, I've asked the band to close with a song that is the opposite of all this lie. If you listen close, I think this is God, not what Satan wants him to be. <laughs>